0: Welcome to New Books in History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Each week we select a recently published book and interview the author to gain insight into their creative and analytical processes and how they came to their topic. Historian David Silby returns to New Books in Military History with his second book, The Boxer Rebellion and the Great Game in China. The popular uprising known as the Boxer Rebellion has long only been vaguely understood with Hollywood playing as great a role in shaping common perception of the event, as have historians. The result has been a generally misplaced understanding of the event, focusing more on the besieged Western consulates and the relief expeditions than on the complex interactions between the boxers and the Chinese court, both between themselves and individually, and together against the West. Sylvia has written a very accessible account of the Boxer Rebellion that also conveys the complexity of these relationships and the often successful resistance Chinese forces raised against the advancing relief columns. As the West imposed its will over the Manchu court, the stage was set for the nation's first halting steps into the modern era, in turn setting in motion a long history of exploitation and conflict that would end with the rebirth of China as a world power. An interesting study in the nexus between imperialism, racial ideology, and military history, Silby's book again provides the reader with a window into a misunderstood and often ignored incident that remains relevant even today. Hello everybody, welcome back to New Books in Military History. This is Bob Wintermute. Today we're talking with David Silby about his new book, The Boxer Rebellion and the Great Game in China. This is our second interview with Professor Silby. You may recall our 2011 discussion about his then-current book, A War, Frontier, and Empire, which was a study of the Philippine-American War. The military dimension of the great imperialist game of the late 19th, early 20th centuries once again rises to the fore in this book. It's safe to say, I think, that the Boxer Rebellion of 1900 is one of those often cited but also generally totally misunderstood conflicts of the early 20th century frequently has been portrayed as a glorified rescue mission pitting modern western armies operating in relatively smooth cooperation against a woefully mismatched and inept radical populist Chinese secret society. Likewise, the incident is often used as a marker to highlight the beginning of the end for the Manchu dynasty in China, the intervention itself being seen as the last great insult committed against the Chinese people by both their imperial overlords and the western invaders. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to the story, and David Silby has taken on the not insignificant task of bringing it to the fore for the current reader. He reveals the complexity of the boxers and their goals in Chinese society, as well as their intersection with different factions within the court. Also, rather than being a cakewalk for the Westerners, the relief mission teetered repeatedly on the brink of failure, caught between remarkably competent Chinese military forces and a bickering Allied force of polyglot regiments assembled on the fly. The result is an extremely informative and critical study of the Great Game as it played out in China, with implications that remain important well into the 21st century. David, after that long preamble, it's good to talk to you again.
1: Thank you so much for having me on again. It's a great pleasure.
0: Before we get started, any new developments uh, professionally since our last talk that you'd like to share?
1: Um, so I'm now at uh, Cornell University. Um, we had Cornell has a DC program um, that sends students down to work in DC and take classes. And so I'm now living in Washington, D.C. and um, uh, working uh, for an Ivy League school, which is uh, which is a big uh, culture shift uh, of its own. Um, it's a great experience and. Um, DC is about to uh, uh, undergo the 17-year uh, cicada uh, eruption. So, <laughs> Chicada. So, we're um, uh, we're looking forward to several million uh, hungry bugs emerging from the ground um, and looking around for friends uh, in the next few months.
0: It sounds like the opening of Congress. I don't. <laughs>
1: There's a really good comparison there, but I won't go into it too much.
0: <laughs> Dave, what what's you to this project? Well, so I had written
1: this. You you and I talked about the Philippine-American War, and and I'd written a book on it. And while I was researching the war in the Philippines, I came across this crazy little sideline um, in China in 1900 that actually pulled American troops away from uh, the Philippines uh, onto the mainland of Asia. Um, And I sort of filed it away while I was writing the book on on the Philippines, and then sort of returned to it when I when I finished that book, and started um, doing some more research uh, on it. And the more research I did, the more interesting it got. It's this crazy com. It was this crazy combination of, um, you know, weird secret societies and multiple empires fighting each other and the Chinese and these great historical characters like the Dowager Empress of China, um, who had been sort of lost to history. Um, And the more I got into it, the more I got fascinated by it. Um, So I I sort of went to my publisher at that point and said, uh, Hey, you know, I've got this thing. Are you interested in doing it? And they, they agreed with me. They thought it was quite wonderful. Um, and so they signed me on for another book, and I sort of set about happily uh, researching uh, and writing it.
0: Yeah, but, I, I like how you present the Box Rebellion as kind of this last encounter between the ancient and modern worlds. Um, do you, can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of the things that, that drew me in was the 1900s is really this moment when it, it not only shifts uh, into the 20th century, um, chronologically, but also sort of shifts culturally at the same time. The um, the sort of the new uh, technology, the new industrial revolution is sweeping through the world. Um, the telegraph system, for example, has almost uh, encircled the globe by this point. Uh, finally, manages it for good in 1902. Um, but at the same time, there's uh, a large amount of more traditional, old things desperately sort of hanging on um, in both uh, the Western world and in the, um, uh, in the, uh, the Third World. Um, and sometimes the two things are sort of combined. Um, 1900 is the second uh, series of the renewed Olympic Games, mm-hmm. um, which had started up in 1896 in Athens and were being held in 1900 in Paris. And they were sort of this both this deliberate nod back to ancient Greece, but also this much more modern imperial rivalry way of of having sort of uh, an imperial rivalry in a relatively peaceful way, um, and bringing together um, uh, you know athletes from around the world um, to compete with each other, and also have those competitions reported back to their home countries through the new media that had grown up. Mm -hmm. Um, So so 1900's really this this year of transition, um, and the Boxer Rebellion is really, I think, exemplifies that. It's the last gasp of the Chinese imperial dynasty, the Qing dynasty that had ruled since the 17th century, um, that is really staggering towards the finish line. Mm -hmm. Um, And the sort of a a very traditional style Chinese secret society rising up to try and resist this, uh, uh, try to resist Western domination. But then on the flip side, it's also this sort of very modern moment of Western empires imposing themselves on China, building railroads and telegraphs, um, and all sorts of very modern things. um, Mm -hmm. And Christian missionaries coming into China and building schools to educate the Chinese. And it's that interaction, I think, between the modern and the traditional that really gives the Boxer Rebellion both its energy at the time and also sort of enduring interest for us today.
0: Who exactly were the Boxers?
1: yeah the boxers, well, first off, by the way, I should note um, uh, for the listeners, uh, it's a good idea when choosing historical projects not to pick one where one of the major characters share a name with a kind of underwear, um, uh, the boxers, in this case, um, because it causes all sorts of uh, annoying research issues um, <laughs> which i won't I won't detail too specifically because this is a family program, but uh, I
0: appreciate I,
1: that <laughs> yeah exactly it did it, it cause a certain number of trouble uh troubles um, in any case, but the boxers are the boxers are great, the boxers are fascinating the it, to understand who they were, you have to understand how Chinese society worked um, and one of the things I think we as Westerners need to understand about the Chinese is unlike the stereotype we tend to have of the Chinese as being very docile. And phlegmatic and unemotional, they are in fact almost exactly the opposite. Um, the Chinese are obstreperous, and they resist authority, and they are loud and aggressive, um, and highly, highly sort of um, uh, entertaining in in their sort of social social interactions. And one of the things that that they did, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, was create what were called secret societies. And these were these social groups um, that sprang up, and they were partly sort of mystical societies, they were partly sort of um, uh, social groups, and they were partly sort of self-help societies, where the members would come together and help each other in tough economic and cultural times. Um, and some of them had, had risen up to the level of... Um, sometimes some of them would rise up to the level of revolting against the government. Um, in fact, in the middle of the 19th century, the Taipings, who were a who were sort of mutant Christian sect of Chinese, um, almost succeeded in overthrowing the Chinese uh, dynasty um uh in a t- decade long civil war that saw millions of people uh die um, so this is and, and these secret societies range from the size of the taipings who were millions in in numbers to much smaller groups um uh, who were sort of very local and 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 did these things and the boxers were one of these um one of these groups they rose up in the Shandong province of China, which, if we think of a Western parallel, would sort of be like um, uh, Nottingham Forest is is in England. It's a very sort of um, resisting, um, rebellious society, um, very poor, um, very long tradition of fighting back against the man um, and fighting each other, fighting the next village over, uh winter in the Shandong was known as the Bandit season because everybody would um stop their farming or they couldn't farm in the winter and go out on the roads and start mugging each other um and the boxers started there, and they they rose up because the people of Shandong felt that there was there were too many outsiders coming into their villages, whether it was Railroad engineers building railroads, telegraph engineers building telegraph lines, Christian missionaries converting um, the locals. They felt that the outside world was imposing itself on them. And the boxers, and the Chinese name for boxers translates roughly as fists of righteous harmony, um, was this society that rose up, and they had this ritual, uh, these martial arts rituals, that promised physical invulnerability to harm, if you did them correctly.
0: Huh. So they're similar to the ghost dances, I think. Exactly, exactly. That's a, that's a
1: very good parallel um, to them. And um, immunity from bullets and knives and swords and anything like that. And um, also um, promised, uh, also sort of proposed an answer to... This problem of the outside world. And the, the slogan that they had was was a very simple one, and it translates roughly as "support the dynasty, exterminate the foreigner." And it was very attractive. It was they would boxers would go into the market areas of, of these villages, and they would put on these martial arts displays. And they were very they, that, that sort of
0: physicality was sort of very attractive, especially I think to young men. Young well, that that seems like it's a it's a part of of Chinese culture as well the physicality of yep. of martial arts slash ballet as yep. popular entertainment yes no that's and
1: that's a very good point and and especially at the village level that kind the, the kind of interaction between martial arts and theater um, which you sort of hinted at when you talked about ballet is mm-hmm. is enormous chinese street theater was a was a major cultural um, cultural thing and it was mm-hmm. It was fascinating in all sorts of ways. The, the Chinese theater troupes would put on plays on, on the market days, and they would sort of set out chairs for the audience, and they would always reserve a couple of chairs for the local gods.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you can sort of see that interaction between spirituality and physicality and performance um, and, dis- and public display right. um, in a way that is sort of very much part of the Chinese the Chinese culture.
0: Yeah, I mean, so so very it would be very true that this is rather than being an aberration or an outlier, the boxers and and their methods really represent yeah you know, the mainstream in rural or uh, small scale discourse.
1: Exactly, that's exactly right. That that is exactly right. I mean, I, one of the things we shouldn't say at, is that the boxers were an outlier um, in cultural terms. They they. Any, any local Chinese would have recognized um, would have recognized exactly what kind of group the boxers were. And in fact, it actually, that sort of uh, familiarity hampered the Chinese government um, uh, and stopped them from recognizing that the boxers were extraordinary in terms of their overall effect. Right. Because they looked like one of these local groups, of which there were hundreds. Right. And the local Chinese governors would just say, well, no, this is just another one of these local, small local groups. We've got lots of them. They're not a big problem. I'll, I'll, um, I'll lock up their leaders like we always do, and then we'll be done with them. And so right. it took, took them a long time to realize there was a really serious issue going on.
0: Yeah, that kind of brings to the second question, which is their relationship with the Manchu court, because at some point they actually become very influential on court policy
1: right yeah it's funny the 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 Dowager Empress Shushi uh, who is who is the one who is really uh, running the government at that point and had been for the last several decades yeah. doesn't quite know what to do with the boxers when they come to her attention at first, she thinks it's just another one of these local movements and she orders her uh, military men to deal with them, but then when the boxers start having some success against Foreigners. She begins to get a little tempted by the idea that, "Hey, these might help her get rid of these annoying foreigners." Sure. Um, And so they go back and forth, and eventually she sort of throws her, uh, her, 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 herself, and the court in on the side of the, on the boxers, um, Mm -hmm. with disastrous consequences for everybody.
0: Yeah, I mean, because it almost seems like she ends up, you know. A captive to their will, as much as they were you know going to be as much as they would be her agent or her yeah, yeah, no
1: exactly and and i don't and and the root of that is I don't think she ever really understood uh the movement or what was driving it um that she sort of saw this as something like a tidal wave or a forest fire, a natural disaster that she could take advantage of, but right. You know, as is always the case with natural disasters, they tend to be driving you rather than you driving it. (laughs) Um, And that was certainly the case with the Chinese dynasty. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, too, when you stop to think about her age. I mean, she's, um, I believe she's in her 70s at the time. Yeah. She had been around since the Taiping. Yeah. She had experience with these kind of popular movements before.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. She had been a very young concubine uh, in the court when the first Taiping revolt had broken out. Um, And so one of her earliest memories of being in the Chinese court was actually fleeing Beijing just ahead of yet another Western invasion, um, which happened in the middle of the Taiping Civil War, um, and only coming back to it after a couple of years. Um, And the emperor that she... um, uh, that she sort of was the concubine for, had actually sort of died while in exile, um, and the Chinese said of oh, a broken heart um, because of the, the twin disasters of the Taiping and, and the Western invasion. So that memory, I think, really sort of defines how she reacts to these large-scale movements.
0: What's the Chinese army's position on the boxers?
1: <laughs> Which Chinese army? Ah, uh, that's yeah, exactly. You know, there's there's about six Chinese armies at this point. There's the sort of the local militia who are uh, who are sort of hired because they have connect or or they're there because they have connection, local connections, or nobility. They're not very well trained. They're not very well armed. Um, they're not particularly interested in dying for the cause. Um, there are the uh, excuse me the the sort of uh, the Manchu bandmen. Who are um, the sort of the, the armies of the Manchu nobility spread throughout the region, um, and they are more of a political uh, statement. Who um, are there? Uh, who who serve as the source of, of power for the Manchu nobility, um, and then there are what are called the new armies, um, which uh, are these armies that the that the Dowager Empress had started building up in the late 19th century on um, explicitly Western models. So she's trying to build up an army that could potentially fight the Western Imperial armies, um, uh, on an equal basis. Right. Um, and so all of those are political pawns. All of those are, um, have varying levels of military capability and all of those are involved to a greater or lesser degree. Um, that for the most part, the Chinese soldiers were very suspicious of the boxers. Mm-hmm. They thought they were a little bit crazy. They didn't like how they handled things. Um, but they had fought the boxers early on before they were before the Dowager Empress switched her side. And among other things, um, Chinese soldiers would sometimes test out the invulnerability claims of the boxers by shooting them. Um <laughs> with, uh, uh, results that you can imagine, um, uh, for the boxers, I'm afraid.
0: Well, what triggers the uprising?
1: Um, it's, it's an interesting question. So the, the boxers, the boxers through 1899 and, and so on are, uh, pretty much confined to Shandong. Um, but <clears throat> starting in, um, starting in 1898, there had been a drought in Northern China Mm-hmm. And so the uh, a lot of the farm workers and farmers in general were had nothing to do because there was no rain, there was very little chance to um, uh, work in the fields and so they were uh, sort of at leisure and along come the boxers who suggest an answer to this problem. <laughs> And from village to village, the number of recruits began to jump drastically in, the, in, the late, in late 1899 and early nineteen hundred, right. And they start to go after people they think are responsible for this. At first, they go after the local Chinese Christian converts. Right. Then, then they start going after the missionaries. Then they start going after all the foreigners they can find, engineers, journalists, and so on. Mm-hmm. And then they start appearing in Beijing and start going after the embassy personnel in the spring of 1900. And so it's this sort of very slow-growing crisis that it takes a while for the Western powers to realize until finally in sort of April and May of 1900, their ambassadors and consuls and legates are being threatened directly um, in Beijing. And all the Western powers wake up with a start and realize, "Hey, we we actually have to do something about this." Yeah. But by then, the forest fire—to continue that analogy—the
0: forest fire is burning pretty brightly. And of course, you know the, the, the Dowager Empress by this point has has self identified herself with the Boxers or not. She's still going back and forth. It, it gets it gets
1: really nutty. So the Boxers force the. The, the boxers force the the um, Western embassy people back into this sort of fortified area in Beijing. Mm-hmm. And the Dowager can't really decide what to do about this. So she, she surrounds it with her own army. Mm-hmm. And they go back and forth between shooting at the Westerners and attacking them or just sort of containing them and holding off the boxers. At one point, they deliver a wagon loads full of rice and watermelons as a gesture of goodwill to the Westerners. So right. the, you know, and the Westerners don't know what's going on. And one minute the, the Chinese soldiers are shooting at them and the boxers are attacking them. And the next minute you've got a wagon full of watermelons mm. coming through the front gate. I mean it's this sort of crazy ambivalent back and forth um, on the um uh, on the Western side, on the, I'm sorry, on the Chinese
0: side. Right. And nobody in the consulate, amongst the consulate personnel, or none, none of the Westerners in, in Peking at the time, realizes this. I mean, they're, they're all surprised by this amb- ambiguity, or are they, is there anybody who has a finger or at least has a sense of the the internal challenges, internal right. rivalries taking place in the court? Right
1: for the most part the the uh, embassy folks put worst possible interpretation on everything that the Chinese did. Right. That the sort of wagon full of watermelons was actually a trick to get them to come out. Yeah. Uh, and all sorts of things. The one exception to this is a guy named Robert Hart who is British and has been head of the Chinese Customs Service mm-hmm. for a number of decades and he understands the Chinese really um, really well um, and he sort of I think he, he has a sense of what's going on. But the problem is that the sense he gets is that the Chinese don't really know what they're doing and that there are different right. factions in the court. And so the advice he's giving is that, that the Chinese don't know what they're doing. And, and, and coming out of that, there's not a lot that the – even if the embassy personnel listen to him, there's not really a lot that they could do except be – um, as safe as possible right um, well, you know, it's
0: one, basically weathering the weathering the storm at
1: that exactly point. exactly at one point um the the Chinese promised the embassy personnel safe conduct to get out of Beijing. And it looks like from the Chinese in the Chinese court that this was an attempt to get rid of the embassy folks, to, to get them out of Beijing so they wouldn't be an issue anymore. Right. Not not to kill them, but just to get them down, get them off. Get
0: them away from the boxers. And exactly. Start to walk just things over. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Um, the problem is, and the, and the Westerners see this as a trick to get them to come out and they're right. going to get slaughtered when they come out. Well, you can say, well, that's not really what the Chinese were doing, but fair enough. You know, the, the if if the Westerners are wrong, they're still safe. Yeah. If you know, Hart is wrong about this, and they go out, then they're all dead. Right. So the sort of cost-benefit analysis is not there. Right. The other thing, the other thing to remember is the British, especially, have another memory of a of a na- national uprising that caught them by surprise. Yes. And that's the Indian Mutiny of 1857. And so they are always sort of conscious that this looks an awful lot like what happened in in India in 1857. And one of the things that happened in 1857 at a place called Kanpur was that the local British garrison listened to promises of safe conduct from the Indian mutineers, went out, and were all slaughtered. And so that sort of sense feeds into the paranoia of, on the Western side. Right. Instead, what the what the Westerners do is they scream for help. You know, you've got we've got sort of uh, our navy ships all over the place. We've got soldiers all over the place. Send us guards. Send us a relief expedition.
0: Right. Right. Which brings me to then. You know, I, I can't talk about. The book, without thinking back to that 1963 film, "55 uh, Days in Peking," <laughs> you know, Charlton Heston, David Niven, Ava Gardner, you know, the three of them standing alone and saving P- Peking from itself.
1: Oh gosh, yes,
0: yeah, yes.
1: It's a, it's forgive me. It's a terrible. It's one of the last of those um, sort of look at how great imperialism was yeah. movies and how. How how wonderful the sort of Western rulers of these these other countries were, yeah. um, and and listen, I understand completely. One of my favorite movies of all time is Gunga Din with <laughs> Cary Grant and uh, Douglas Fairbanks, which is which is the epitome of that. Um, but it's also a
0: commentary on that that's imperial imperialism. At the time, mm-hmm. it's still at its heyday or at its height. Too.
1: Exactly, exactly. And and nobody, I, I swear to God, nobody does imperialism is great movies, better than the United States, uh, better than Hollywood, which is, which is sort of funny given our sort of conflicted relationship with it. But Gunga Din was a Hollywood movie. 55 yes. Days in, in Peking is a Hollywood movie. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I highlight about these kind of movies is that in both Gunga Din and in 55 Days in Peking, the bad guys are always played by Western actors.
0: Mm-hmm
1: so in fifty five days in in peking the um, uh, they, the the uh, um the villainous general the villainous Chinese general is played by Leo Gen, who's a British and Jewish actor um, uh, of long standing um in Gungadin, the um the the bad guy is played by another an American Jewish actor and there's this sort of fascinating cultural sense in which well, if you want an Oriental villain to be played, get the Jewish actor right. um, from the from uh, from your local country and right, who's them. just
0: other enough to, to have an exotic quality, but exactly also can, can play do devious quite well.
1: Exactly, exactly right. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah, so it's it is. Uh, it's the only major movie that I think that was made out of the Boxer Rebellion.
0: I, I'm hard pressed to think of anything, even like a, a mini series or a part of a mini series about it. And the one thing that stands out for me is, you know, it highlights. You know, the, the besieged consulates. It's all acting in cooperation. Yes. During the siege, we're all yeah. going to get along together and work together. And I, I have a hard time accepting that.
1: Yeah, no, and that's. I mean, that's one of the, the inaccuracies. Is the Embassy personnel, uh, cooperated, um, when they had to at the last resort, but they resented it, um, and they, uh, often did not do it that effectively, um, from the very beginning to the very end. Um, right at the beginning, for example, um, the German, uh, consul, Baron von Kettler, mm-hmm. um, decided that he was going to ignore this council of, ministers who were trying to run things and set off to confront the Chinese on his own.
0: Well, he had some experience with the court as well. He wasn't a uh, he was, you know, in essence an old China hand himself, was
1: oh, he? Oh, yes. Yes, and and which makes it all more remarkable, his misunderstanding of what was happening. Um, and so he sets off in in May, in early May, to confront the Chinese and he leaves the fortified area. Uh, with an assistant and is promptly set upon by the boxers mm-hmm. um and uh and killed. Um uh and this is sort of the really the sort of one of the shocking moments for the for the embassy folks because this is this is an actual killing of someone. Yeah. Um and then, you know, the the British disagree with how to run things with the French who disagree with the Germans, um the Germans disagree with the Americans. The Americans disagree with the British. Um, the uh, um, various forces pull back from parts they're not supposed to um, right. and cause uh, cause problems. Nobody likes the French uh, ambassador, Stephen Pichon, because he's uh, reputed to be hysterical. <laughs>
0: um,
1: even worse, on a personal level, a number of them are sleeping with each other's spouses, Um, so, uh, there's the personal jealousies going into it. Um, and so it's this sort of very sort of chaotic situation, um, in the middle of it. Um, and that, um, really only settles down when the crisis gets bad enough that people start forgetting about the rivalries and start. Um, start well, they
0: realize the ship is sinking, and they better all get together.
1: Yeah, exactly right. Um, there's, a, there's a joke there about rats, but uh, <laughs> that would be a little bit a little bit unfair. The guy who gets no credit, I think, is a, a British guy by the name of uh, Edward Gamewell, mm-hmm. um, who is actually an engineer. Um, and he, as soon as the crisis starts, he sets about fortifying the area around the embassy as effectively as he can. And it's his fortifications that really um, save uh, the uh, embassy folks when they're under attack. Um, okay. They're they're able to hold off the Chinese assault because these uh, fortifications have been
0: built up um, right. pretty well, well. Were these half-hearted assaults, or were, were the Chinese seriously at a serious at any point in trying to overrun the consulate district?
1: Early, it it depended on who was doing these assault. Early on, they were fairly um, fairly serious. Um, and for example, the one side of the embassy was um, the outer wall of the um, uh, the Forbidden, uh, not the, the outer wall of the Imperial City, mm-hmm. um, and it was held half by American Marines uh, and half by the Chinese. Um, and there was some very vicious infighting um, along that wall. Right. Um, but as the siege went on, you get the sense that the Chinese soldiers, especially, were the Chinese army, especially was sort of not really pressing things home. Um, They would sort of fire from their fortifications. They would bombard the um, uh, embassies um, fairly aggressively. Uh, They might try to set things on fire. But there was never the kind of determined assault from all sides at the same time that the Chinese could have mounted. um, And that really would probably have overwhelmed the defenders. Right. Uh, if the Chinese had ever mounted a frontal assault on all the, all sides of the uh, of the fortifications i don 't think that the embassy defenders could have held out
0: right well of course, compounding things too is it 's not just the westerners who are in the compound right
1: oh yes, yeah, so the other i mean the other the other great group who flee into the compound are the the Chinese Christian converts there are a couple thousand of them, mm-hmm. um, and it also sort of illustrates the what I would say—the sort of indifferent heroism of the of the Westerners there—the Chinese Christian converts come in, and they're sort of treated as second-class citizens. Um, they're they're put off in a separate area of the embassy by themselves, and they're essentially left without any any real food, um, any real supplies um, from the Western. Folks, The Western folks sort of kept most of the supplies for themselves Mm -hmm. and gave the Chinese Christians, at best, um, bags of musty rice. Um, And so, you know, you can sort of see this. Well, yes, they brought them into the the compound, but then they've sort of left them to fend for themselves. Um, And the result was that uh, a fair number of them um, sort of starved to death or died of malnourishment, Okay. Um, and a fair number of them took their lives in their hands and sort of tried to sneak out and um, find their way um, out of Beijing.
0: But at the same time, too, you point out that, s- that several of them also risked their lives to be intermediaries, to deliver messages to
1: them. Oh, people. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, once the telegraph line from Beijing down to the coast was cut off, the Westerners started sending messages with, um, <clears throat> with uh, uh Chinese volunteers who, as you say, are are probably the most heroic uh, of anybody in the entire book because they're volunteering to carry a written message through the lines of the boxers and the Chinese armies uh, all the way down to wherever the Westerners are, and then so risk their lives then, but then risk their lives trying to get into the Western forces who are very suspicious of the Chinese at this point, and are just as likely to shoot them as they are to listen to them. Mm-hmm. My favorite story of this, this one is, is one of the Chinese volunteers who makes it um, is given a written message, and he scales down the walls of the defensive thing. And the first thing he does is memorizes the message and then eats it. <laughs> because he knows if he gets caught with it, they'll oh, yeah. torture him to death. Yeah. So he, he memorizes it and eats the, eats the paper, and then he goes off and he gets caught by the boxers. But he insists that he's just a local peasant who's out, you know, a refuge. Uh, and they can't find uh, any evidence that he's not, because, you know, obviously he's eaten the message. Right. Um, so they let him go. So he makes his way, you know, so, sort of uh, almost 100 miles down to Tianjin, where the Westerners are. Draws the attention of some French soldiers down in Tianjin. Ducks down when they shoot at him. Pops back up and, <laughs> and waves his hand again <laughs> at finally convinces them not to kill him outright, and the message finally percolates its way up to the the commanders of the Western forces. That's heroic. Um, You know, that's really remarkable, and that's really sort of an impressive amount of loyalty, especially given the way that the other uh, Chinese Christians were being treated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, tell this account, completely lost.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk sort from of Peking, which is really, you know, I think, almost a distraction from the real story, which is the critical issues of the Western relief effort. Yep. Many have assumed that you know, the, the relief was, you know, it's a fait accompli. Of course it's going to succeed. But that's far from the case, isn't it? Exactly. It's the, in fact, the Westerners,
1: from the very beginning, assumed that it was going to be easy. Uh, and the, and the real, the, the real person to look at is a British admiral by the name of Edward Seymour, mm-hmm. who is a, who's been, who's been on a ship out in Asia and the Indian Ocean for almost 40 years. So he knows this, this sort of area of the empire. And when, um, the sort of cries for help come down from Beijing, Seymour puts together a relief force. Um, in May of 1915. Mm-hmm. And he, he's going to go up to Beijing, and he's going to, uh, with several thousand um, soldiers and sailors, whoever he can gather, right. and he's going to relieve, he's going to protect the, the embassies. Now you pause for a second and note the the sort of the bluff confidence of an, a British admiral sending an army of several thousand men to the capital of a foreign country. <laughs> without a second thought. But Seymour is even more, shall we say, overconfident than that, because he decides that rather than marching up to Beijing, he's going to take the train. Oh, yes. Exactly. I mean, he he sort of treats it like he's a commuter going into work in the morning. There's a train line between Tianjin, which is the coastal, near the coast uh, city, and Beijing. And so he loads up his troops on the train uh, one morning. Uh, the Americans insist on being, on being in the front, cart, mm-hmm. front car because they're, they think they're the most important folks. Um, and they set off for Beijing. Well, you can immediately see the problem with this, which is that if you are facing any, a force with any kind of sense, they're going to cut the railroad line. At the very least, yeah. Exactly, and that's exactly what the boxers do. They get a a few miles north of Tianjin, and the line in front of them is cut. And Seymour, rather than thinking to himself, this was a bad idea, I'm going to march it from here on in, sets about repairing the line. And it takes them hours, and they move forward, and they move forward a few miles, and they discover another cut. And Seymour, again, instead of saying... You know what? Let's march. But now the boxers get smart, because now they not only cut the line in front of the Westerners.
0: Cut the line behind them as well. They
1: cut the line behind them, exactly right. So now suddenly Seymour's stuck. He can't get supplies coming up from Tianjin, and he can't move in either direction. And he doesn't have enough supplies now to march, so he's got to stick with the railroad, um, or he's done. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'll pause for a second. We should probably forgive Seymour a little bit. He was an admiral, not a general. Right. He wasn't experienced in land warfare. So he, he's not really clear on what he's doing, but he's doing an impressively bad job.
0: Well, he's also s- surrounded, I'm, I'm sure, with various other army field officers from the different forces, the Americans and the British especially. Yes. Yeah. You and have they, to be giving him advice,
1: I would hope. I th- I think they were. I don't know that they were pushing it as hard as they might have been because no one there was close to him in rank. And they all, right. they all also were very overconfident. They didn't see the Chinese as being um, real enemies. Right. Uh, and some of that was the racism of the time. Mm-hmm. Some of that was the fact that the Chinese had not shown themselves to be Particularly effective, and some of that was the sort of skepticism about the boxer movement.
0: Right, right. We'll come to the issue of racism in a little bit. Too.
1: Yeah, you was know, um, the issue of of seeing the boxers as completely sort of irrational, uh, crazy folk, um, and they so they didn't really sort of treat them as real um, uh, as real enemies, and the boxers made them pay for it. Right. Now, so, so so sort of one final part of this is. Seymour now decides, all right, I'm going to keep going on the rail line. So he starts repairing it, and I'm going to prevent them from cutting it again behind me by leaving little groups of soldiers to protect that chunk of the line. Catastrophic. Now he's dividing his force into small penny packets of men stretched out over the rail line and sort of leaving them there to... um,
0: to Leaving them to their fate, essentially.
1: Oh, yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, and he sort of keeps making this sort of very slow progress up north. The one thing that's saving them at the moment is that the boxers can't really inflict damage on the Western soldiers, can not inflict right. substantial casualties on the Western soldiers. They attack the Westerners, but the Westerners' uh, weaponry is so effective at this point between repeating rifles and machine guns but the boxers have real trouble um, getting close enough to hurt the Western soldiers. Right.
0: But you do know, too, that there are occasions where they do close to you know, personal melee combat. Right. And right. You know, overwhelm or come closer to overwhelming the Westerners in that right. case. Yeah, the boxers are, the boxers are very t- smart tactically. They
1: resort to ambush um, mm-hmm. as much as they can. Uh, and so they would so, sort of hide in villages along the railroad line and wait until Western, the Western soldiers got close. And when they were close enough, they would, um, you know, sort of charge them and hope to get in amongst them before the Westerners could kill them with uh, with the machine guns and with the rifles. Right. Now, that, that worked a number of times. And so Seymour was, was definitely taking casualties it wasn't until later on that he, he, they had taken enough casualties that they were actually getting seriously worried about, about defending themselves. Right. Um, but but um, so it's sort of this moment of balance. If the boxers can slow Seymour down enough and inflict enough casualties on him, mm-hmm. then they have a chance of wiping out the, um, the expedition. If they can't, then Seymour has a chance of getting to Beijing.
0: And of course, through all this too, I'm sure the boxers or some of the boxers are also, perhaps, hoping that by making a strong enough display, they can you know pull the Chinese army, be it the Bannermen or the regular army, Exactly. The conflict. Exactly right. And in fact, the
1: the Chinese army had sort of been sitting on the sidelines. They had watched the West, the ex, uh, sorry, they had watched Seymour's expedition sort of head up the railroad uh, past them and done nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's late it's uh, it's during this that the Dowager Empress finally decides that yes, she's going to throw her lot in with the boxers, and so, in the middle of all this, and what really I think tilts seymour's uh, or changes Seymour's mind about what he's doing is that Chinese soldiers start appearing in the attackers right and that's a really dangerous moment for the Westerners because the Chinese have weapons that are as good, if not better, than what the Western forces do. Um, they're more organized. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more disciplined than the sort of ragtag group that Seymour has. Right. And Seymour's not sure that, he, that his force can survive if it has to fight not only boxers, but the Chinese soldiers. Right.
0: right. And you raise a point there, too, that I think a lot of people don't realize don't think about, is how, in, in many cases, these, let's, let's call them smaller or you know second-rate armies, Associated with, for example, China or or the Spanish in Cuba, actually acquire better arms than their Western opponents. Oh yes, yeah, and through the arms trade.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because of course, before before the rebellion, all the Western powers were trying to gain influence in China, and one of the ways to gain influence uh, gain influence was to sell them weaponry. Mm -hmm. And so the Chinese have the Chinese these new Chinese armies. Had lovely, spanking new artillery made by Krupp mm. of Germany, um, and they that those artillery, those Chinese artilleryists were trained by German officers. Um, the Chinese soldiers and officers were trained by Japanese officers, and they were using uh, German small arms. And so, before the rebellion, it's a way for the empires to get influence. During the rebellion, it comes back to really haunt. The uh, the Western powers, in the same way that in Afghanistan, some of the weaponry that we gave to the Mujahideen against the Soviets in the eighties came back to haunt us when we uh, went into Afghanistan in the in the first decade of the twenty first century. Exactly.
0: Well, when does the relief expedition for the relief expedition come into play? <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I know. So it, this is where it gets really crazy. So Seymour finally decides to turn around and. His relief expedition just barely makes it out back to Tianjin, and they find in Tianjin um, uh, that the, the foreign enclave in Tianjin itself is now besieged. So suddenly, it's not just a problem in Beijing; it's a problem all over northern Northern China. Right. Seymour, at this point, thankfully, is sidelined by the uh, by the British, and instead, British and French and American generals take over, and they began putting together a substantial relief expedition, Mm -hmm. much larger than what Seymour had set out with, and forgive me for putting it this way, but much more sensibly organized than what Seymour had done. Uh, It's notable that none of the British generals were willing to talk about Seymour's approach on the record Hmm. After it was over, they all maintained a very polite silence about... Um, Which is telling it of itself. Exactly, of exactly right. And so, but even this gets sucked into imperial rivalries, because they, the empires can't agree who should command this second expedition. Mm-hmm. The, it can't be the British, because... Well, sorry, it can't be the Italians, or the Austro-Hungarians, or... Um, uh, anybody like that, because they're not powerful enough. Right, can't be the Japanese, because although they're closest...
0: They're not Western.
1: No. Exactly right. They you know, can't be them. It can't be the um, French, because their sphere of influence is in Southeast Asia, right. in Vietnam, uh, and Indochina. Um, so it sort of comes down to the Russians and the British and the Germans um, uh, on who will lead them. The British and the Russians refuse to let each other run it right? because they have a big rivalry in India. And, so and this
0: is before the, the Entente Cordiale. So.
1: Exactly. And so it becomes, and the Germans really want it because they have no great empire, and this is really the moment. So the Germans, the Germans get to appoint the commander, and the guy the Kaiser appoints is a friend of his who is still in Germany. Which is, which is, you know, obviously an utter waste of... Uh, going to co- I'm sorry, it's going to cause a massive uh, delay in uh, uh, getting him out there, but that's the agreement. So, through the summer, the Westerners are sitting in Tianjin while the Germans put together a force of soldiers right. and get the commander, who's a, who's a guy named Baron von Waldersee, right. to head out to China. And Two things happen. First off, the Kaiser, as von Waldersee is leaving, the Kaiser gives this speech where he, send, he sends the German troops off and tells them to make the Chinese remember the Un for a thousand years, to be so brutal and so cruel to them that they will never do anything like this. And it's it's such a sort of aggressive statement that it sort of defines how the Germans are perceived, and how Kaiser Wilhelm is perceived um, by the rest of the world. The, the, The Berlin, the German Foreign Office is so embarrassed by this sort of statement, which they hadn't written into the speech he was supposed to give, that they actually edit it out of the transcript. Right. But he sort of sends them off to, to set China afire from one end to the other.
0: Well, it's too late, too, because the foreign press is there to pick up on, no matter how they may try to, to edit it out.
1: Exactly. exactly, And that's where we get the nickname for Germans of the Huns. Right. Um, but at the other end of the, uh, of the globe, the British general is thinking, you know what, My government, the governments of these countries can make all the agreements they want to, but we're here on the ground. And time's a-wasting. And mm-hmm. so I think we should go now. So even as von Waldersee and the Germans are setting, getting on ships and sailing through the Baltic, down the Atlantic, <laughs> through the Suez, through the, you know, wandering their way slowly to, um, to China, General Gasly, who is the British general and convinces the American general, uh, Adna Chaffee,
0: Right
1: to put together an impromptu relief expedition, which will head north well before the Germans get there. And that's exactly what happens. Right. The, right. the Western powers, led by a, a council of generals, set off um, in August of 1900, and they set off by themselves. And it's not only a way of, of rescuing the hostages as quickly as possible, but also of thumbing their nose at the Germans, um, which... The British and French, no matter how much they disliked each other, oh, would God. always exactly would always agree on doing something mean to the Germans.
0: Poor Germans! <laughs> <laughs> oh, they
1: deserved it, please. <laughs> What's the? There's the famous story about Margaret Thatcher uh, in in 1990. She's told that the German soccer team beat the uh, British national team in the semifinals of the World Cup, and that they'd beaten the um, uh, English at their national game of soccer. And this was a great tragedy. And, Thatcher, without without missing a beat, said, uh, "That's all right. We've beaten them at their national game twice this century."
0: <laughs> I actually have that saying on my wall in my office. <laughs> nice, very nice. There you go. Exactly right. So, even with the relief expedition, the new relief expedition going north, they have a hard go of it, right? They do, they do, and it's fascinating, because this is has sort of been completely lost to the history. The Second Relief Expedition,
1: sort of treated as a walk-in in the park, you know, in, in sunny uh, uh, China of, of summer, uh, the summer of 1900. But it starts off, and it's actually quite difficult. The Chinese army, along with the boxers, mount a series of fairly major delaying actions where they they fortify the line that the uh, Western expedition is taking, and really force the Westerners to mount fairly substantial um, attacks on the Chinese to break through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a series, early on in the expedition, there's a series of really intense battles between the Chinese and the Westerners. And they go in the Western, they all are victories for the Westerners, but they're much more difficult and intense than is really remembered. It's only towards the middle of the expedition that the Chinese army really starts to give up on the idea of resisting the Western expedition um, because they don't think they can hold them out. Right. Um, before that, though, it was a very violent um, uh, sort of march for the Western powers.
0: You know, another image I recall, going back to our least favorite movie, 55 Days in Peking, is, you know, how the eight armies lifted the siege, which is presented in this great kind of almost parade-ground panoply. Of, you know, <laughs> the western imperial armies. Right. You know, all acting together in cooperation.
1: Oh, oh, good lord, yes. Yes. yes,
0: yes. Oh, yes, I forgot about
1: that scene. The reality is, is, is grossly different. Um, right. The... The Western, the, the Western powers are watching each other as much as they're fighting the Chinese. They don't want anybody else to steal a march on them. And so on August 14th, uh, the night they, uh, the, uh towards the end of the day, they pull up just outside of Beijing and the Council of Generals gets together and they sort of have a discussion about how they're going to handle it and they agree on what the movie showed, which is they're going to have this sort of joint attack on Beijing that will Everybody will carry their weight, um, and so on.
0: Yeah.
1: And then, and everybody goes back to their respective camps and settles in for the night. And then the Russians try to steal a march. <laughs> the Russian, the Russian general later claimed that he would sent a scouting expedition out, Bruh. and that they had gotten into trouble. So he sent his entire force, um, his entire force with him. Well, that sounds like a lovely story, but I'm not buying it. <laughs> um, but so the Russians try to steal a march, and everybody the Japanese are watching the Russians because they're suspicious of the Russians. And they see the Russians leaving, so they start marching after the, the Russians. And they're nice enough to send a messenger to both the British and the French saying, hey, looks like we're going a little bit early. And so it turns into this overnight, in the middle of the pouring rain, race to the walls of Beijing Um, and by these disparate groups, all of whom are trying to get there first and sort of win, if you'll forgive my comparison, win the Beijing Olympics (laughs) a century or so early, earlier, it really was early. It really was a sporting event, uh, in a lot of
0: ways. Yeah. A sport with, you know, dismal outcomes for the Chinese. Yeah,
1: oh yeah. Well, it's pretty clear the Chinese had given up on trying to hold Beijing. I mean, there wasn't a, a really large Chinese force left in Beijing. And the bizarre thing is that the the way the Westerners did it actually ended up really destroying the Chinese defenses because right. the Russians and Japanese hit the the center of the Eastern wall of, of Beijing and drew most of the defenders over to them right and there weren't enough to cover all the whole, all the walls right. when the American and the Br- Americans and the British and the French came up, they hit the southern end of the eastern wall, and there were very few Chinese defenders there uh, with the result that the Americans and the British uh, were able to break through fairly fairly easily, mm-hmm. and then they started racing each other. To see you could get to the embassy first. Who, um, who got the honors of winning that race? <laughs> well, now that depends on who you ask, doesn't sure. it? Yes, exactly. So the British claim that they got there first, uh, and more authoritatively, the British general Gassily claims that he got there first, he uh-huh. and his assistants. The Americans claim that they got there first, although they will concede that, well, no, they really didn't get there first but it wasn't a fair race because they ran into more resistance than the British did. Right, right. Um, the reality seems to be that a group of Indian soldiers, British Indian soldiers, found their way through a water drain in the embassy fortifications okay. and popped up in the middle of a garden party. That the embassy folks were having
0: I'm, I can imagine the response of the relief expedition to know that they came just in time
1: <laughs> exactly for 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 a nice afternoon tea um, with uh, with biscuits uh, and uh, they were eating ponies at that point, so biscuits and horse meat oh. uh, I know um, the bizarre thing of course, the bizarre thing was and the, and the embassy folks said this was the embassy folks were actually you know they were washed up, they had clean clothing. And so they were sort of clean and well laid out, and they'd been eating okay. And the relief expedition were dirty and tired, and they'd been marching for weeks, Um, so they Mm -hmm. were sort of very uh, thinned down. And so for a moment it wasn't clear who was saving whom uh, on that. But then the Sikh soldiers, they were were Sikhs actually, went and got gasoline, and he followed them in and uh, and relieved everybody.
0: And then what ensues is... Uh,
1: the looting of Peking. Oh yes, yeah, once the once the western soldiers got in there, it was open season. The um, uh, Beijing was one of the wealthiest capital cities in the world. It was the center of a, an, a you know, millennium old, millennia old empire that concentrated its wealth in the upper classes. And Beijing was the exemplar of that. You know, ranging from the hada, the, the sort of ordinary folks, the ordinary nobility who had mass quantities of gold and silver and silk and all sorts of things, up to the Forbidden City of the the, the Chinese dynasty, which put anything the Westerners had, I think, really to shame. Right. And the Western soldiers went went crazy and just grabbed everything they could.
0: There's kind of like a hypocrisy there, though, too, because don't they? Then, after competing to reach the city, they compete to blame everyone else for the looting.
1: Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's everybody else is and, and and again, it's sort of this report that everyone else is is doing the looting, but not not us right. um, the uh, the Japanese, although I have to say everybody agreed that the Japanese were best at it. The one the, somebody said that the Japanese could loot, uh, could loot before breakfast. Um, which which was apparently a big uh, a social faux pas or something like that, but mm. but everybody was doing it. The British the, the British got to the point that there was so much loot floating around that they would have afternoon auctions <sighs> on the embassy grounds of the looted stuff, um, and anybody could show up and auction off um, what they were what they were doing. The the best evidence, just for example, in the Japanese. Which we know about because there was a scandal a year or two later about it was the Japanese bought home not pounds but tons of gold and silver mm. from china um, after after the the revolution was over um and they were they they were not, they weren't really they weren't embarrassed by it you know they talked about about sort of being the civilized nations, but you read the letters of the ordinary soldiers and and they're sort of they're writing home saying, you know, this is what I got to bring home with me. And uh, one of the uh, American doctor, uh, Leslie Groves Sr., the father of Leslie Groves Jr., who headed the atomic bomb program,
0: right. was
1: was there. And he wrote a letter to his wife where he said, you know, I'm terribly sorry, dear. All I managed to grab for you were a couple of fur coats and some jewelry. Uh, I'll try to get some more. So it was just this sort of perfectly uncontroversial Thing in Beijing, yeah. it was a little bit more controversial back
0: home, but not not an
1: enormous amount
0: no, well, of course, back home in the united states you 're going to have other controversies from the Philippines, right, stirring, stirring blood right, exactly right yeah, well, I mean that, that brings me up to the issue of incipient racism, you know and when, what what 's driving some of the actions being undertaken by the West? towards the Chinese you right. know, and indeed the entire uprising itself if it can be classified as an uprising as one of these moments of western racist ideology yep. provoking and then pushing the conflict further but at the same time there's Chinese racism as well
1: Right, right. Yeah, it's this fascinating interaction of uh, sort of racial perspectives I mean this is Certainly in the West, this is the period when social Darwinism is at, at nearly at its height. And so right. there's this very strong belief in a hierarchy of races um, and that the Westerners are superior to a descending uh, outline of races, right. including, you know, Mongols and Asiatics and Africans and so on. And the Chinese are very low down that scale. So there's this perception of the Chinese as being uncivilized, inferior beings, and they're often treated exactly like that. A Chinese life is not worth what a Western life is to the Westerners in, right. in China. And that drives a fair amount of atrocities on the Western on the Western part. Right. But as you point out, the, the the flip side is also true. The Chinese had a very developed sense of their own superiority to, to everyone else. Uh-huh. And so they perceived the Westerners as barbarians and treated them accordingly. And certainly we go back to that boxer slogan, support the dynasty, exterminate the foreigner. Right. The Chinese didn't distinguish between... Um, didn't distinguish in that in that regard. They were quite happy to torture and execute men, women, Western men, women, and children during this period without much in the way of um, uh, uh, of sort of conscience about it. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of it is it is both sides um, sort of looking at each other through this very racial lens, and it's hard to say that there's that there's a good guy. Uh, or a good uh, a good
0: side in this. Maybe what, those, those Chinese Christian volunteers.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's as close as you get. But even there, I mean, the, so, the, so the weird thing about the Chinese Christian converts is converting to Christianity in these local towns was a way of gaining a certain amount of social power, and in fact, legal power, because if you got into, into legal trouble it, it, as a Chinese villager, the missionary would intercede oh. on your behalf and you can imagine who converts to Christianity. Yeah. It's the murderers and the thieves and all the bad guys. And so suddenly even the Chinese Christian converts are not quite as lily white. Uh, forgive my use of uh, old-style racial um, uh, stereotype. They're not quite as um, a good, a good as you might think. But you're right. The volunteers uh, who, who risk their lives to take the messages are about as close as you get to a real... Uh, sort of really
0: pure hero in this
1: uh, uh, in this in this yeah. situation
0: and yet you know in the end you know, it's, it's interesting too because the boxers just melt away,
1: yeah, no, and you know not without giving away too much that uh, that occurs in the book is if you if we remember back to what was what was causing the, the enlistment in the boxers that drought, well, what happened in the beginning of august it starts to rain. Oh. And it starts to rain heavily. And so one of the things that I think happened, and there's not a lot of great evidence for this, but it makes makes sense in this context, is that the boxers sort of looked up at the sky, saw that it was raining, and thought to themselves, I've got fields that need to be plowed.
0: Well, the boxers, or rather the rural peasant supporters of the boxers, who sustained the movement itself.
1: Right, right, right. And they went home. And, you know, they'd done what they set out to do. They'd attack some foreigners. They'd sort of dealt with the locals, and now it was time to go home. It's sort of, what did you do, what did I do with my summer vacation? um, (laughs) Would have been an interesting assignment in Chinese schools in the fall of 1900.
0: It might have. It might have. Well, I mean, the immediate outcomes are pretty self-evident of the Boxer Uprising. What would be the more critical ones, both at the time, but then also later? Yeah, the Boxer Rebellion
1: is really that. I think that last moment when sort of imperialism, when the old style imperialism, it sort of imposes itself on on China. And what it really provokes is the collapse of the uh, dynasty in China. The peace treaty that came out of the Boxer Rebellion was very punitive to the to the Chinese and required them to pay over forty years quite a large sum and punish them in other ways. And the dynasty sort of staggered on for a few more years, but then ultimately collapsed in 1911, right. and threw China into decades' worth of, uh, of civil war and chaos. And so, you know, the boxer... The, the, the Chinese sort of talk about the 19th century as being the century of disaster, um, and the Boxer Rebellion was really sort of the end moment of that, but it was also the beginning of the complete breakdown of traditional China and the remaking uh, of it. Um, and, right. and decades later, even Mao Zedong harkens back to the Boxer Rebellion as being the first of the modern revolutions that led to the communist takeover of China. Now, there's, there, he's overstating the case drastically, but during the Cultural Revolution in the 60s, he actually brings out two elderly boxer veterans hmm. and sort of displays them as sort of the model for the, the Red Guard. That oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and there's that great moment in the late 1960s when the the Red Guard actually invades the British embassy uh, successfully and takes the British um, uh, embassy personnel out and parades them around. doesn't hurt anybody, really, but parades them around. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of that closure on the Boxer Rebellion. The boxers have finally, or their successors, have finally succeeded in capturing the embassy. Right. But it really is, that, I think, that turning point where China, before the Boxer Rebellion, China was looking back to the old world. Right. And after the Boxer Rebellion, China was really looking forward to the new... Um, to the new modern and technological
0: world. Right. Well, you know, we, we were all quite aware as well of how China, the Chinese people today, and even the Chinese government, are connected to their history and emphasize their past, uh, particularly yeah. with reference to Japan. Yep. Does the Boxer Rebellion come up in contemporary discourse at all? Uh, it does, it does. And it's still... it, it in In...
1: And sort of, they're they're much more ambivalent about it now. Um, mm-hmm. It is sort of seen as a,
0: <clears throat>
1: it is seen as a moment of resistance against the Western interlopers, especially the Japanese. Right. But it's also seen as a much more chaotic popular movement than it had been.
0: Both I, of which are to be suppressed or exactly right, and that's especially true after
1: Tiananmen Square which is exactly the same kind of popular uprising that the boxer movement had been, and took the Chinese government with the same kind of surprise in
0: 1989.
1: Hmm. Um, Tiananmen, obviously, was eventually suppressed with great violence, but there's, there's sort of, they, they, had, they felt this sort of worrying echo of that uh, uprising when they look back at the boxers. And so the Chinese are much, especially the Chinese government, are much more ambivalent about the boxers than they were uh, under Mao Zedong uh, and the and the communists of the 60s and 70s.
0: Okay. Well, I think it's a good good point to bring us to a close. Uh, Actually, I'm going to ask you our our our, you know, our, our standard closing question. Uh, what's next? Where do you go from here? Okay. Yes. Yeah. So I'm I'm jumping ship
1: from the uh, the 19th from the 19th and early 20th century. Sort of. Um, I'm writing a book on, on British and American soldiers and veterans during the First World War. Oh. Uh, and the essential idea is that the war doesn't end when the combat stops. Right. That even after the combat is over, the war is still the central issue for these societies in 1920s Britain and America. The, right. the veterans, the soldiers come home, they demobilize they become veterans, they are treated with great respect and war, um, great deference. And so there's this sort of sense that the war is still ongoing, um, even after 1918. Right. And that sense ends at some point, and I think in Britain it ends in 1926 with the general strike, and in yeah. the U.S. in 1932 with the Bonus Army March. Right. And you know, World War I veterans march on Washington, to, or 33, 32, right. march on Washington to demand help, and they are suppressed by the American army led by Douglas MacArthur. Right, right. I mean, that's as, as classic a statement of, okay, we understand what you did for us in the First World War, but you're not the most important uh, constituency
0: anymore. Right. Well, it's also that constitu- I guess you could argue too, that constituency also reaches, the, um, grabs hold of the levers of power. As well at that
1: time that's true, that's very true actually yes and both Roosevelt and Churchill in in Britain had been sort of major players in the, in the first World War um, right. um, efforts and the, the World War I generation was beginning to make its way into uh, into the levers of power. I'm using oral history mostly to, uh, to, to look at these the, the experience of these guys yeah and it's going to come out with Oxford University Press.
0: Oh, um, fantastic.
1: Yes, thank you. We are hoping in, in 1916, but uh, academic projects and deadlines are like uh, oil I, and water.
0: I know. I've got one I'm hoping to have for for 2017, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> exactly right. So, well, at the very least, we'll be on the same conference panel maybe someday soon.
1: <laughs> that would be excellent.
0: I would love that. David, it's great talking to you.
1: Great talking to you, Bob. I appreciate you doing this, and uh, I've enjoyed myself immensely.
0: That's grand. And on behalf of New Books in History, this is Bob Wintermute, thanking all of our listeners. You've been listening to an interview with David Silby, the author of The Boxer Rebellion and The Great Game in China. This is your host, Bob Wintermute, thanking you for listening to New Books in Military History.